I'd like you to open your Bibles, please, at Matthew chapter 3, found on page 967. You need a Bible, Henry. (laughs) Now, some of you here, I'm sure, are old enough to remember the Billy Graham crusade at Haringey in 1953. Some of you may even have attended. It was a tremendous occasion. Newspapers were full of stories of this brash young American preacher coming to address huge crowds Some people predicted it would be a flop. Other people were very critical. But many, many people flocked from all over the country to hear this preacher preaching an old-fashioned message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There were coaches. There were landlines laid on to local churches in various places so that they could hear the transmission from Haringey. It was a sensation. And something like that was happening there by the River Jordan. If you look at verse 5, people went out to him, that is John the Baptist, from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. There were huge crowds flocking to hear this new prophet. But do you know something? In 1953, I lived about two miles from Haringey Arena, but I never went I was swept up in the cynicism of many people and said, oh, mass hysteria. So I didn't go. And I guess there were many who didn't go to hear John the Baptist. But those who did go were those who, perhaps like us this morning, sense a hunger in our hearts for something more of God. Isn't it a wonderful feeling to have? A hunger, a desire not to be complacent about the state we're in, but a desire to move forward, to journey on. And so there were people there. And the interesting thing is that Billy Graham asked British people to do something that they were not comfortable with. Do you remember? I wish I could do the American accent. He said, I want you to get up out of your seats and come to the front. Now, that was a thing British people didn't do. They didn't do that at all. They they just sat quietly in their pews, listened to the sermon, sang the closing hymn, and then all scurried off to their homes. But no, Billy Graham said, I want you to do something about this message I've been preaching. I want you to get up out of your seats. And you know, John the Baptist was doing something there by the River Jordan that was very strange to Jewish people. He was asking them to be baptised. Now, Jews had never been baptised before. They were born the people of God, so they thought. They had Abraham for their father, they were fond of saying. They were God's chosen people. But John the Baptist was saying, no. Come and repent and believe the good news and be baptised. The other Gospels tell us that it was for the washing away of their sins. Matthew saves that for the account of the crucifixion where he talks about Jesus cleansing us from our sin. But that was the message that John the Baptist had. Look, 
Don't count on Abraham for your father. There's a new era dawning now, a new way of relating to God. And the start of it is this ceremony of baptism. Ceremony is the wrong word, isn't it? This simple act of being immersed in the water and symbolising washing away their sins. Then chapter 3 and verse 1, in those days John the Baptist came. In which days? Well, if you look back at the previous verse, the end of chapter 2, and Jesus went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So there's a, there's a 30-year gap between that verse and the next verse. But we're to understand that Jesus was still living in Nazareth. Strange, isn't it? Have you ever read a biography of anyone where they say nothing at all about their subject's upbringing, about their childhood, about their adolescence, about their early manhood or womanhood? No, I bet you haven't. Why is it that the Gospel writers don't tell us any of those fascinating details that we'd love to know about Jesus' personal life, his home life? Well, it's because the Gospels are not biographies. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John all had the one objective, to present Jesus to their readers. John makes it explicit, doesn't he? John said, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The others don't make it so explicit, but it's their aim. And there's a sense when reading any of the Gospels, if you read a Gospel right through from beginning to end at one sitting, you get the impression you're being moved forward, being swept forward to that great cataclysmic event, the death of Jesus, which is the most important thing that any of the book Gospel writers report to us. It's almost like, I've never experienced it myself, almost like being on a boat approaching a waterfall, isn't it? You're getting faster and faster and faster and suddenly you're over the edge. The Gospels are like that. And so, the image of a journey is very appropriate. We're moving forward as we read the Gospels. We saw in the last session the start of God's wonderful initiative to bring his people, the Jews, but also Gentiles, people like us, into a wonderful new experience of knowing him. Matthew 2, verse 2 where is the one who has been born king of the Jews, said the Magi. He was born a king. And last time we looked at Micah chapter 5, didn't we? And we saw how the king prophesied in the Old Testament would be born in an insignificant town, but from that insignificant town would come a ruler whose origin was of ancient times. Exciting, tantalising, isn't it? Whose origin is from ancient times. Who would care for and nurture his people as a shepherd cares for his flock. A king whose greatness would not be restricted just to his country, but would reach to the ends of the earth. But, as we look at chapter 3 of Matthew's Gospel we realise that Jesus has had no preparation for being a king, for being a ruler. 
He wasn't brought up in a royal palace. He's had no training, like I should imagine all the members of our royal family have. How do you behave? How do you relate to this, that, and the other situation? From glimpses in the Gospels, we learn just a little bit about Jesus' upbringing. He was raised in Nazareth, which was even more insignificant than Bethlehem. He was the oldest in a big family. There were five boys and sisters. We're not told how many sisters there were. Jesus was the eldest of at least seven. And the father was a carpenter. Isn't that wonderful? A king who knows what it is to be a commoner. It's the stuff of fairy tales, isn't it? But this isn't a fairy tale. This actually happened. That the Son of God experienced what it was like. Something we all know, to be brought up in a family. To know the relationship with brothers and sisters. The submission to an earthly father and mother. We'd love to know a lot more, wouldn't we? About those years of Jesus growing up. And I'm sure people have conjured up all various fictitious accounts of Jesus' childhood. But more important for us this morning, and the thing that I ponder about, did Jesus know he was the Son of God and that he had this saving mission? I don't know. Perhaps you've got strong views about that. We just get one glimpse, don't we, in Luke's Gospel at the end of chapter 2. Incidents where Jesus is lost, apparently. And of course, Mary and Joseph go back to Jerusalem and they find the 12 year old Jesus there discussing matters of the law with the Jewish religious teachers. And Jesus says, Didn't you know that I had to be on my father's, sorry, in my father's house? Interesting, isn't it? Did he mention that? Did he mention his father's house, the temple, on other occasions? We don't know. We don't know. It's something the gospel writers don't tell us. But there's this tantalizing and mysterious glimpse in the letter to the Hebrews, which says, although he was a son, Jesus that is, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Does the writer to the Hebrews refer only to Jesus' death on the cross and his suffering in Gethsemane? Or was there a certain suffering in Jesus' upbringing, I wonder? A sadness in Jesus' heart as he looked around and saw the way that God's chosen people, the Jews, his people, had turned so far away from obedience to God. Let's just read a few verses. I'll start at verse 11, because it sets the picture somewhat. We've seen that everyone was coming out to John the Baptist. He was making it clear that he had a revolutionary message, talking about images like the axe being at the root of the trees, and every, act, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Then in verse 11... John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. 
He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. In a way, this passage marks a watershed in the whole biblical message, if you like. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus says, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, meaning John the Baptist. Since that time, the kingdom of God is being preached. Many commentators see John the Baptist as being the last of the Old Testament prophets. If you like, he forms a bridge between the Old Testament and the New. If you look at his message that he preaches, it's very much an Old Testament message, talking about fire and brimstone, talking about axes being laid to the root of trees, talking about God raising up new children for Abraham, castigating the Pharisees and Sadducees as being a brood of vipers, fiery, shocking language. Then we have Jesus coming onto the scene, and by his gentleness, by his submission, bringing suddenly a completely new fragrance. And of course, baptism, although it was something out of the ordinary then, is no longer a historical oddity. But it's there right at the heart of the Christian gospel, isn't it? Time and time again through the New Testament, we read the words, repent and be baptised. It's loud and clear, not just as a personal commitment, but as a means by which we are immersed into this new experience of being the people of God, spread throughout all the world, so that we are now one with suffering Christians in Sri Lanka, so that now we, all through different, from different educational and perhaps social backgrounds, we are brought into one family and we meet together and there is amongst us a love that comes, not if you like from our attractiveness to one another, but from the love of God that's poured into our hearts and overflows. This is something that the Apostle Paul captured when he was writing to that troublesome and divided church in Corinth. He says to them, For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And in this church, 
we have installed a baptistry just below my feet here. Recognising the call of the New Testament to follow Jesus, going down into the water, symbolising the washing away of our sins, and rising up again, symbolising the new life that only Jesus can give us. If you're interested in being baptised, have a word with Keith. I'm sure he'll be delighted to answer your questions. But we're going to look at the significance of this passage and also, perhaps, well, certainly, also, not just looking at this in its historical interest, but looking at this passage of what it's saying for you and for me today and what guidance is given, it's giving us for our journey with Jesus.